It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And this episode has a lot of small chapters and also it's really amazing to me that the way this worked out the first chapter we're doing today a squeeze of the hand 94 is not the one i'm most excited for in this section even though it is one of the wildest chapters in the book yeah there's a lot of good stuff we're, we're covering uh today 94 through 98 which is gonna okay so i don't trust that this is really the last of it but at least the way ishmael presents it uh, 98 is, is the end of the whole, like, whale processing I think process. that it's, at the very least, he's putting a button on whale processing in stowing down and clearing up, which is literally about, like, cleaning up after the whale after is all, processed. Yeah, after, after the trying out, yeah. Yes. So, yes, but every chapter this week is about, uh, in some, some of the stuff that is done to process the whale oil yes um this week we're getting just really in there into whale oil processing and the production of you know the thing the pequod's journey is really about the production of oil for sale on the market <laughs> starbuck would approve of this yes. chapter i'm sure uh, and of all the following ones hmm that's a, that's a claim <laughs> i don't know if that's true uh, uh but yeah um just uh Really just an enormous amount of involvement with sperm in these chapters. And also other parts of the whale, but yeah, there's a lot of sperm. Uh, yeah, that's true, actually. I guess I guess because sperm is already liquid, you don't need to try it out. I guess it's blubber that is tried out, I, and that yeah, produces so, a different kind of oil. So we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but trying out is basically boiling the blubber to get the oil out of it. And sperm is processed in other ways. It's not entirely clear to me if it is uh, cooked at some point. Um, I think it has to be, but I think that possibly it's cooked much more quickly and easily than the uh, blubber. Yeah, that, that would make a certain amount of sense. Because, because uh, uncooked sperm um, crystallizes, as we shall see, because that's what the first chapter is about. Yes. Uh, 94, A Squeeze of the Hand, which is about uh, the tendency of sperm to coagulate. Yeah, so... Uh, Sorry, that sounded awful. No, look, all right. Uh, this whole chapter is about sperm, and <laughs> it is about, like, it, it, it is... I think we've mentioned before that, like, the uh, Melville and Ishmael and, like, people of this era in general are perfectly conscious of the fact that the word sperm also means, like, you know, semen. Yes, um, and, and, that's... and specifically they're also aware that spermaceti, the, you know, oleaginous substance in a sperm whale's head, is not semen. Yes, like it, it is called that because in the past it was believed that it might be the whale's actual 
like seminal reproductive fluid. yeah yeah uh and and people now know that that's not true but like also everyone's aware that it's like this you know uh thick white substance <laughs> So, like, if we sound like we're being juvenile, we're only being at least as juvenile as the book is capable of being as well. Yeah, like, this chapter's wild. I've said that before, and I'll say it again. Yeah, so so let's get into... Yes, um, yeah, the events of the chapter. There's not a ton that happens in this chapter. Yeah, so the situation here is that um, they're, they're processing uh, the... The whale that Stubb, like, captured from the Bouton de Rose. Um, I don't think it's that one, uh, because, um... Well, that whale of Stubb's so dearly purchased, I... I, mm, I hmm. No, I thought this was the one that, uh, was captured when Pip went overboard. That's why it's so dearly purchased. Oh, you know what? You must be right. Yeah, I guess Yeah, because just... I don't think the Rosebud was dearly purchased. In fact, that one was very easily purchased. I guess so. And I think they, they pushed off from that one and left it because it was rotting and didn't have any oil in it. Yeah, so they after just... After they get the ambergris. They just got the ambergris out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. It's not immediately obvious because, um, <laughs> frankly, uh, paying attention to the things Stubb is doing while Pip is floating in the water there feels like just repeating the thing that happened to Pip. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, Stubb, in general, also has, like, captured a number of whales. Yes. Uh, anyway, so... He's a he's a good whaler. So is Starbuck. Yeah. Flask um, seems meh. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, part of the reason why I thought this might be that blasted whale is that this particular one, um, for whatever reason, um, its sperm is, like, cooled and, and crystallized. I uh, think that's really just a result of the time it takes to access the sperm and bail it all out. Yeah. Like... You're probably right. I, I, I just, I imagined it was... I, I assume that when you get to a blasted whale, if it has any sperm left, it probably is, like, cooled. Um, but anyway, uh, perfectly believable that that's just a thing that would happen in general. Yeah. Um, and uh, this means that uh, before they can, like, actually, um, you know, or, or rather, I guess once they have uh, bailed it into tubs, but yeah, before specifically they can store they... it... Remember, Ishmael calls it the bailing of the Heidelberg Tun, because he's referring to the, the giant cask within the whale's head. So they've done that whole process previously described of, uh, you know, ribboning the whale's, like, blubber off into the blanket, and the removal of various sections of whale for use that we've previously... So the butchery is all sort of done. Yes, and th they have to basically, um, like, uh, like, work these, like, lumps in the sperm to get it get them back to a liquid state yeah because it it's cooled and crystallized and he does say here that um uh while some were occupied with this latter duty the bailing others were employed in dragging away the larger tub so soon as filled with the sperm and when the proper time arrived this same sperm was carefully manipulated ear going to the triworks of which anon so the sperm does go to the triworks i imagine it just cooks out much faster into a higher like degree of oil yeah that would make sense um and uh so uh, Ishmael refers to what he's doing here, and Ishmael's one of the people who's doing this, yeah. as uh, squeezing the sperm. Yes, it's the, it was our business to squeeze these lumps back into fluid. So, like, it's like if you have, um, you know, buildup of anything, really, in, like, a liquid that started to crystallize. You just, you mix it, you squeeze, you squish it around and it re-dissolves back into the liquid only here it's the spermaceti and he's they're physically grabbing it with their hands and squishing it yeah 
Yeah. No gloves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> he, uh, according to Ishmael, it's moisturizing his fingers. Oh, yeah, no. He um, he considers it to be a great lotion. Uh, he describes it as a um, sweet and unctuous duty to uh, squeeze the sperm. Um, also, there are many sentences in this chapter. One of them is... <laughs> After having my hands in it for only a few minutes, my fingers felt like eels and began, as it were, to serpentine and spiralize. And that's some Junji Ito shit to me. Yeah, I mean, I assume that mostly what he means is that his fingers are getting pruny, right? Oh, yeah, probably. But, like, serpentine and spiralize makes it sound like the bones have gone floppy. Yeah, no, it's a weird it's a weird way to talk about his hands. Um, They're also all, like, slippery. And he... There's so many exclamation points. Such a clearer, such a sweetener, such a softener, such a delicious mollifier. He's very convinced of the skincare benefits of sperm. Yes. And, like, he's also clearly uh, kind of relieved because this is a, like, easy and, like, comfortable duty after Mm. he's just been hauling on the windlass. Um, Yep, after the bitter exertion of the windlass. Yeah. Um, and like everything's calm the ship isn't rocking much the wind is low but consistent uh yeah and um i like the phrase the ship under indolent sail like it's not going heavily but it is moving yes yes uh and uh being you know uh immersed in this this pleasant and comfortable duty involved with this like uh you know um like pleasantly aromatic sperm yeah he talks a lot about the various health benefits that sperm is like associated with that it's supposed to allay anger and be generally a a, you know useful cosmetic talks about various historical uses thereof yeah uh and uh basically it like it has this kind of like soothing i would say almost hypnotic effect on ishmael yeah uh in that inexpressible sperm i washed my hands and heart of like his trouble specifically well, he forgets the oath of, yeah 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 sorry. yeah I, I just think it you should read the the previous clause which is i forgot all about our horrible oath so like basically this is something that i think is interesting because he hasn't been like emphasizing the horrible oath throughout this but it, mm-hmm. this definitely gives the impression that like that has been weighing on ishmael's mind yeah and we'll see more about it later in this section that we're reading today that the oath of Ahab and Ahab's sort of will is pretty constantly present uh, in the Pequod, even if it's not really um, described in the text. And possibly it's one of those things, at least the way reading this made me feel, where it's like, oh, Ishmael doesn't think about it a lot, but it's always like present. There's an anxiety there, an energy. And while he's squeezing sperm, he's like, oh, this is so relaxing. I've com- you know, there was something on my shoulders, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it basically takes away all of his, like, negative emotions. I felt divinely free from ill will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. And then there's the incredible sentence at the beginning of... The, like I said, there's a lot of sentences in this chapter. It's made up of them. Uh, the beginning of this next paragraph. Yeah, so this... I, I have in the past... I'm not sure if I've actually said this on the podcast, but I have in the past occasionally referred to the orgy chapter it's this paragraph that gives me that feeling because it's this paragraph that i really think is just about ishmael experiencing a kind of like ecstasy in this sperm and in regarding his, his crewmates and, and like a, a sort of enormous overflowing feeling of love for his fellow man that is definitely very physical yes yes anyways please read that first sentence yes 
Squeeze, 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 all the morning long. I squeezed that sperm till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborer's hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. So yeah, uh, Ishmael is... Also, that's squeeze, squeeze, squeeze with exclamation points, just to yes. give you such a strong sense of how important this sperm is to Ishmael in this I, I want to keep... I just want to Okay, go paragraph. ahead, go ahead. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget, that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally, as much as to say, Oh, my dear fellow <sighs> beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities or know the slightest ill humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all round. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves oh. universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Yeah, it's it's the orgy chapter. He just wants, like, all sort of divisions between humanity to be dissolved into sperm. Yep, and to squeeze into each other. Yeah, like... Also, can you imagine being Ishmael's, like, co-worker, who presumably doesn't dislike him, because they're putting up with this. He doesn't mention getting punched. And presumably but... also doesn't dislike this duty, because it is, yeah, like, yeah. easy compared to the windlass. Specifically, the, the reason I want to be clear that I think Ishmael might have gotten a rap is that he's not doing the job. He's just squeezing their hands and directly preventing them from doing the yeah, job. Yeah, and just, like, like, gazing up lovingly into their yeah, eyes, and they're, and they're like, like oh, what are Ishmael. you doing? <laughs> Ishmael, bother someone else. I'm squeezing sperm. <laughs> and, like... You know, clearly they put up with this. And yeah, yeah. You know, maybe he is, in fact, you know, continuing to be helpful and squeeze the sperm, but it really does sound like he's completely lost track of it and is just, like, gazing over this tub of viscous spermaceti, uh, holding their hands, looking up and then being like, oh, universal love. And Queequeg's just sort of like, Yes, Ishmael, I know. Squeeze I, the sperm, Ishmael. I don't think I don't think Queequeg has to. No, do this. probably not. He's a harpooner. Queequeg has more important stuff to do right now, probably. But yeah, no, I. Uh, this is like. Also, I'm going to be entirely honest. I'd assume that if Queequeg was doing it, Ishmael would have told us. That does seem plausible. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like this is not the first time we have gotten the impression that Ishmael tends to get distracted in the middle of doing <laughs> stuff and like be kind of ineffective at it. Like remember oh, yes. what his masthead was like? Yeah, no, Ishmael is Ishmael's not an efficient worker. He's not a like an intense driven worker. He's just sort of along. He's just vibing. He's just vibing in the sperm. Yeah, he really is. Uh yeah. Um and he also, uh, kind of, there, there's this, the next paragraph, I'm not going to read this whole, whole paragraph yeah. again, but, but this is, in this one, he kind of, so he talks about the idea that people, you know, man inevitably has to perceive, uh, the idea of, quote, attainable felicity, meaning, you know, like happiness, um, in some kind of, like, material object or person. Yeah, I, the way I interpret this is that, like, you know, you might have this, like, high-minded set of ideals or goals that are supposed to bring you happiness, but ultimately, you know, what actually makes you happy is the people around. I don't think it's, like, specific goals, but, like, the people around you, the context you're in, you know, good good nature and, you know, good company. Yeah, I mean, to me, what I see in this, actually, is a kind of, um, like, allusion to the platonic idea of, like, the good right mm -hmm. and and specifically like 
um, one of the things that comes up in Plato, and I believe specifically in the symposium and Plato's like discussion of like romantic and erotic love, is that um, people are like attracted to other people because they because their souls are are almost like gravitationally attracted mm-hmm. toward the good, and they perceive something good in that other person which might be literally like just physical beauty yeah um and then they are sort of attracted towards that as almost like a a false impression of like divinity um yeah but i think this is going in the opposite direction well i think what he's saying here is it's inevitable that people cannot directly conceive of happiness in the intellect in the fancy they can't directly perceive like Mm. goodness happiness Mm -hmm as something that exists entirely in the mind or the soul, they have to locate it in the examples he gives. I will read this in the wife, the heart, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country, which is to say, you know, these are the people's ideas of, of goodness and happiness and like what is coziness, I think is an important element here. Like this is very much like your immediate physical surroundings by the country. I think he means like the countryside. Mm, I was, I don't think he means the nation interesting that's that's believable um like because the the fireside the saddle the table these aren't things that none of these except maybe the wife are representative of a larger structure yeah no you're right these are these are like uh things, material comforts. these material comforts as opposed to kind of like ideals mm-hmm. uh anyway so his his take on this now that he's he's kind of realized well everyone has to locate happiness in some sort of material comfort well for me that is uh squeezing sperm uh, yep. uh he in fact says uh would that i could keep squeezing that sperm forever yes uh, he has basically decided that is that is mortal paradise for him yep uh, even a little, little beyond that in thoughts of the visions of the night i saw long rows of angels in paradise each with his hands in a jar of spermaceti which just made me imagine a bunch of mason jars and it's and there's like just a hand in each one and that's a lot less uh convivial than the like multi-person sperm tubs yeah yeah <sighs> so yeah yeah, yeah. That, that was that um <laughs> that's it's an important moment in ishmael's emotional development it's extremely sexual it's also kind of hilarious yeah yeah just and, uh, you know, it's generally very Ishmael. And it's also very Ishmael to immediately go into, and now here are some other parts of the whale. <laughs> yes, so the next, the second half of this chapter is just like, here's some other bits of whale tissue. <laughs> that are similar to sperm, but not the same. Yes. Some of them are horrible. <laughs> so, uh, let's just go through one by yep, one. Yep. Uh, the first one is called White Horse. Uh, and this comes from, uh, he says, which is obtained from the tapering part of the fish and also from the thicker portions of his flukes. And it's sort of like a muscular, tendinous material. Yeah, but it still does have some oil. Uh, it's not blubber, but it's got oil in it. Um, also, it's uh, described as uh, being cut into like sections, almost like marble blocks. Yeah. Um, ooh, the next one's called plum pudding. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, ugh. Yeah, so plum pudding is 
some it, it seems like kind of lumps of it are found stuck to the blubber sometimes. Yeah, so my impression is this, these are basically like pockets of fat and veins that are, I'm assuming, sort of like globular, because it's described as looking like a plum pudding, um, and that they're like found attached to the inside of the blubber because it peels off and so there's like these section these these little things are found as sections and removed um it's described as refreshing convivial and beautiful to behold by ishmael which is just like i imagine this thing wobbles i imagine this thing is kind of horrible actually and very veiny but ishmael thinks it's incredibly appetizing looking yeah yeah um and uh he uh it, it, it's kind of like modeled like between kind of like yellow white red purple which i assume is you know it's I'm like assuming it's a it's a lump of fat with blood in it yeah yeah it's it's yeah it is plums of rubies in pictures of citron yeah yeah and uh, apparently he tried a taste of it at some point like specifically quote he says spite of reason it is hard to keep yourself from eating it like no matter what the brain is saying my mouth is just like i want to bite this but um <laughs> He, uh, you know, once he describes it as stealing behind the foremast to try it, he like grabbed some and hid and was like, ow. And I'm assuming it was raw? Yeah, it sounds like from when he's, it doesn't sound like he cooked it, uh, which is, Anyways, he also goes on to use what I can only call the most horrifying metaphor he could have thought of for this one. Yes, he suggests that it tasted as he would imagine, like a piece cut from the thigh of uh, Louis the Sixth of France, known as Le Gros, the yeah, Fat. Yes, uh, who, who was a you know a king in the eleventh uh, and twelfth centuries. Yeah, which so you know, presumably he's seen like a portrait or just has read about it. He knows what the guy's like name was, but this idea of like royal decadence is very clearly being communicated. And he specifies he might have tasted, supposing him to have been killed, you know, the first day after the venison season. So he's been well fed on venison and it was a very good vintage. So he's been drinking a lot of wine. Yeah. So I don't mean to say that Queequeg is a bad influence. (laughs) But this is the most cannibalistic Ishmael has ever been. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, it's a it's a weird metaphor. <laughs> or I guess it's not quite a metaphor, it's a it's a simile, I suppose. But is anyway. it a simile a subcategory of metaphor? I mean he says it tasted as he would imagine. Doesn't yeah, but literally... a simile is a subcategory of metaphor. Yeah. Okay. They're all it's all fig anyway, it's all figurative language. I maybe I'm getting that backwards. It doesn't really matter. Uh the point is it's a weird comparison. Oh yes. Oh yes. Uh, then there's, uh, Slobgallion. Yeah, so this one, he-, he... Which sounds like an evil goblin. <laughs> yes, and, and he says about Slobgallion, an appellation original with the whaleman, <laughs> and even so is the nature of the substance, by which he means, like, uh, this word originated with whalemen, and it, it kind of sounds like, when he says, even so is the nature of the substance, I'm not totally sure what he means by that, but it kind of sounds to me like what he's saying is- it is exactly what it sounds like. See, I think what he's saying is that it's a substance original to the whalemen because as he describes it, Slobgallion is only found by whalemen because it's a byproduct of the production. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, because he, he describes it as an ineffable, oozy, stringy affair. Ugh. Most frequently found in the tubs of sperm after a prolonged squeezing and subsequent decanting. I hold it to be the wondrously thin, ruptured membranes of the case coalescing, which is something that could only occur in the sperm vats. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but the thing is, like, everything he's talking about is stuff that only whalemen would know about, because it's specific chunks of whale tissue. Okay, but other other chunks of whale tissue are not going to be, are not produced by the process. They're they're processed before it. Like, what I... I, I guess what... I, I think I get what you're saying, which is that, like, uh, the this plum pudding, for example, it is a specifically whale piece of meat, but it is in some ways analogous to things you might find elsewhere. No, no, it's just, it's natural to the whale, whereas Slavgalian is only produced when people squeeze sperm. Ah, okay, all right, sure. Like, you can't just go into a whale and get slobgallion. You have to uh, do macerate the sperm in a particular way to coalesce the uh, fragments of casing from the whale's case. Yeah, okay. At least that's, that's his theory of it. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, and I guess this is just sort of like the weird goo left at the bottom after you've poured all of the sperm Yeah, out and he, of the he tub. specifies that it's most frequently found in the tubs of sperm after a prolonged squeezing and subsequent decanting. It doesn't sound like you can just get it straight from the whale. Yeah, all right, all right. You've convinced me. Cool, cool. Slob gallion. It does cool. sound like an evil goblin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next... I'm going to clearly have to put a slob gallion in some... Uh, some tabletop game sometime and see if people know what it is and then shame them for not listening to my podcast. Oh my God. Uh, the next thing is a uh, gurry, uh, which it sounds like is actually not really a thing. F- I mean, it, he's, he, he says that really it's a, it's a, it's a right whale thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I bet that there's some similar stuff on a, uh, on a sperm whale, albeit in lesser quantities that, you know, it's useful to talk about or mention. Yeah, um, and gurry is some kind of uh, dark, glutinous substance which is scraped off the back of the Greenlander right whale, and much of which covers the decks of those inferior souls who hunt that ignoble leviathan. Editorialize much, Ishmael? But yeah, no, the um, the gurry seems to just be like, it's something, it's, it's on the whale skin, it's kind of gross, and it gets everywhere, so I imagine it's getting used just to describe dark crud that builds up on the deck generally. Yeah, that's But he doesn't possible. specify why a sperm whaleman would ever reference it. Yeah, yeah. Um. <sighs> Nippers. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is a... This actually seems like it's, uh, kind of the same thing as Whitehorse, um, because he says... A, a, a nipper, a whaleman's nipper, is a short, firm strip of tendinous stuff cut from the tapering part of Leviathan's tail. Uh, so, it, it sounds like it comes from the same part of the body as Whitehorse and is of a similar substance. It's just that it's it's it has a specific name because it has a specific purpose. It's used as a squeegee. Sorry, it operates like a leathern squilgee. <laughs> also, I was, the first time I read this, I was like, there is no way that squeegee is older than the 1950s. I don't believe you. And squilgee turns out to be a pre-existing thing that, like, uh, apparent, according to Power Moby Dick, it's a swab made of untwisted yarn. I mean, it makes sense to me because, like, uh, decks of ships 
would require constant squeegeeing. Yeah, yeah, no, and... That's what swabbing the deck is. Well, okay, yes, but to me, a squeegee is like a a rigid or, like, you know, rubber, rubber, like, you know, strip. And the part where you squeegee it is that it's not like a mop or something where it sucks stuff up and pushes it along. It's that it's just pushing it along. And here he talks about it like a leather squilgee is a thing. So... I believe that squeegees, as I understand them, which was a specific thing, totally existed in the 1850s and earlier because apparently they used leather or whale meat to do precisely the squeegeeing motion. Yeah, I feel like I should also... There was a little bit of a disaster at my job the other day. Uh, A tube (laughs) burst. Well, it's relevant. There was water all over the floor and I was mopping it up. And in fact, if you are using a mop on a large amount of water and you're just kind of trying to push it eventually the mop becomes sodden and it does start to act as a squeegee and it just pushes the water (laughs) my point is that uh squeegee is presumably a brand i don't think so if the word existed so long ago there's no way the word squeegee well squilgee we don't know if squeegee exists you know this is entirely a a sideline but i'm interested now yeah no squeegee is a generic term Oh, yep. Squeegee or squilgee is how Wikipedia puts it. Well, um, now I'm just... The earliest written reference to squeegees date from the mid-19th century and concerned deck... They're talking about Moby Dick. They're just talking about Moby Dick. Uh... I mean, maybe they're not literally just, but mid-19th century, written references specify a leather blade. Yeah, no, it does, it does sound like, uh... Uh, squeegee as a word has at least some of its earliest references in uh, a a, in in, uh, you know maritime texts of roughly this period Uh, I am just gonna anyways now I can you're looking up the etymology yes now I'm curious yeah no that's fair Uh, you know um in the meantime, uh, I will say that I like this description of how a squilgy works. By nameless blandishments, as of magic, allures along with it all impurities. So it'll, like, clean it off and it'll, you know, remove stains and so on. I feel like part of what's going on here, Ishmael has claimed, I think he's claimed before, and he's going to continue to claim throughout the chapters we're reading today, that uh, whale oil and sperm is, like, has a cleaning power. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I don't have a better... Uh, I don't have better information than this. Also, I really enjoy the fact that it's an intensified form of squeeze, probably, is the, the Wiktionary etymology. Yeah, it... it yeah, I'm not They're finding... They're not giving an I'm not origin. finding any a lot of, like, detailed etymological information here. I, it well, not, on, not on Wiktionary. Maybe well, etymology.com? Did they not have one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I saw one in it. Anyway, this is not important. <laughs> well, um... Okay. Uh, so that's squilgies, and specifically that is nippers, which is a uh, cut piece of tendon used as a squilgie. Yep, yep. Uh, and then uh, he uh, he goes on to say that, it, um, you know, if you really want to learn about all these, like, weird chunks of whale, um, you would need to uh, to learn about these, these recondite matters, um, you know, which which means kind of like 
these like obscure like bits of whale yeah but like recondite i think as a word implies like not just obscure but a certain sense of like kind of uh a, a deep kind of knowledge that you need like a a, a deep education to yeah, yeah it's an expertise yeah exactly anyway he says if you want to learn about this uh you would need to descend to the blubber room and talk to the people who work there um uh, and uh the blubber room is apparently a very dangerous part of the ship. Yes. Uh, and the, the way it works is, and this is, if you'll recall, uh, when we previously talked about the cutting in, this is where the blanket pieces, those like big... Really long strips of blubber that are wide and very long. Yeah. Um, it's where they're processed. And by processed, we mean cut with a spade into uh, smaller portions, which portions will get discussed later in the trying out. Yeah, and to be clear, uh, the, the pieces that the... The, um, the blanket pieces in this operation are getting cut into the horse pieces. And Power Moby Dick says that the horse pieces are about three feet by ten feet. Okay. Um, so so the, those are the sections that are going to be brought then to be further processed at the actual trying. Yeah, the horse yes. pieces will get turned yeah. into the Bible leaves. Yes. Uh, yep. About which next yep. chapter. Uh, but, but yeah... Um, so uh, in, in, the blank, in the blubber room... Um, there's usually two people. Uh, there's one of them who has a pike and a gaff. Um, and a pike being, you know, literally a, a pike. And the gaff is, the gaff is something like a boat hook. Um, and so the, the, that man, it's his job to kind of hold the blubber in place with the pike and the hook. In a moving ship. In a small room with a dim lantern. Yes. And then the other guy has a spade, a whaling spade. We've heard lots of those about those before. Very and is, sharp. And is uh, standing on the slippery blubber as the other guy's trying to hold it in place, stabbing it with the spade yeah. to chop it up. Yeah, I'm assuming that the blubber just fills the room enough that there's just not a space to stand aside and cut it from the side. I think that's true, yes. And... Uh, it's the spade is described as being sharp as hone can make it, so that it needs to be very sharp, so that you can quickly cut the blubber, so that you can process it properly. And um, the spademan's feet are shoeless. He's slipping and sliding on the blubber, like I mean, literally, you could. Oh God, imagine. Okay, you take a blanket piece, you hook, you hook it up to a low mat, a low spar, and then also to the deck some distance away, and you have a slip and slide. Ugh. Anyway. anyway, so he's on basically a horrifying, meaty slip and slide, chopping with a very sharp object at something he is standing on, and if the boat shifts, he loses a toe. Yep. And if his uh, gaffing partner comes too close, he also loses a toe. Apparently toes are quite rare in the blubber room. <laughs> yes. So... Oof. Anyway, so this is Ishmael trying to convince you not to learn more about whale, uh, whale biology. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, to do that, you have to go down into the moving blade zone. <laughs> you make you make it sound like like a video game level. He describes it as a scene of terror to all Tyros, especially by night. Like he's very clear that being in this area means flashing blades. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Uh, which actually brings us to the end of the chapter. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to? Yeah, I, I think we've. I think we've definitely definitely experienced a squeeze of the hand we sure have all right so i have a question before we really get into this chapter yeah what did you think this chapter was about like the object that he refers to in the first paragraph the thing that gets like skinned 
What did you think that was? I thought it was a part of the whale. It is a part of the whale. Did you have a sense of which part? Because I know, thanks to PowerMobyDick.com's citations. No, I in fact was kind of annoyed that it never explained what part was being processed here. Do you want to save this till the end of the chapter so that you can shock our readers as well? No, I just want to tell you, because actually he, he, he makes it sort of clear. It's just that he makes it clear in an elusive way that I think would have been clear to his readers, but not to you and me. Okay. This is the whale's penis. Oh. Yes. Okay, this is chapter 95, the cassock. Uh, and, and the way that he makes it clear, so, so in the first paragraph, he is a little vague about it. He's like, well, uh, had you, you know, gotten onto the Pequot at a certain point and gone, uh, and you strolled forward nigh the windlass, you would have seen this strange object, the, the weirdest thing that you'd see in, in like whale processing. <sighs> uh, it is a, he calls it that unaccountable cone longer than a Kentuckian is tall nigh a foot in diameter at the base, <sighs> and jet black as Yojo, the ebony idol of Queequeg. And this is where he makes it clear that it's a penis. Ah. He compares it to the idol referred to in... The, the 15th chapter of the first book of Kings. Yes, so this is a this is an idol that a, a, a queen mother of Judea, Queen Maka, worshipped. And her uh, son, or grandson in some translations, uh, Asa... one of the kings in the book of kings he like deposes her and destroys her idol and uh the generally sort of held popular conception of this idol uh at at the time um was that it was like a phallic symbol Mm. um it's it's not entirely clear to me like what our current historical perspective on this is but in the in the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, it is specifically called like a, a phallic symbol. Um, cool. So I think that, that yep. I think that Ishmael is intending by this comparison to make it clear that we're talking about a penis here without he's saying ta- it. He's talking about it like it's. I mean, frankly, this bit sounded like Lovecraft, you know, such an idol as that, found in the secret groves of Queen Maka in Judea, and for worshipping which King Asa, her son, Asa? King Asa, her son, did depose her, and destroyed the idol, and burnt it for an abomination at the book Kedron, as darkly set forth in the 15th chapter of the first book of Kings. Yeah. Like, that's, that's like, absolutely hinting at weird and terrible cults, and yes, I get that it's... It is hinting at the penis in the most, like, strange, dark, and witchy way. Yes. Uh, and, and Which is very funny given the previous chapter. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I feel like I should mention, by the way, that while it doesn't seem like we are, uh, in modern scholarship, all that clear on whether Maka's idol was, like, intended as a phallic symbol, yeah. it was probably a... First of all, it was probably literally, like, a pole. Yeah. Um, and also it was... Um, Relating to the worship of uh, Asherah, a, like, fertility goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the various queens of heaven of uh, Semitic religions and sometimes associated with the proto-Hebraic uh, um, queen of heaven, you know, God's wife. Yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, this particular part of the Bible is uh, one of those interesting things that, um, you know, from the perspective of the writers and from the perspective usually of, like, modern kind of uh, religious interpretation, it's yeah. like, ah, this was like a graven idol. But uh, we know that um, 
like his the the you know the ancient people who are being talked about here historically uh becoming monotheistic was a like a a, a, a process. process that happened uh and so it's not so much necessarily at least uh from what we now understand what have been going on historically that uh maka or people like her were like sinning against like an orthodoxy that exists it's more like figures like asa who destroyed these kind of idols were establishing a monotheistic orthodoxy Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know the specific context of the book of kings well enough to say what like point in that development it was i mean i know that uh asa is like one of the uh figures who is like famous in kind of scholarship Mm -hmm. for quote destroying idols yeah yeah. this actually um when i was looking this stuff up i I don't remember. Did we ever talk about the graven serpent in this book, or is that just something you and I have talked like the about? Like bra- the brass serpent that's mentioned in the chapter about Ophites. I think we talked about it on the. On so the the, the reason that this is interesting is that the question of. Oh yeah, the one that was left to be destroyed later. Yeah, where did the bra- How did the brazen serpent survive Asa's destruction of idols? Is like a question of I think like rabbinical commentary. Yes, and to be clear, the brazen serpent. Just to remind anyone who may not have heard about it, is a object created by i want to say it was uh, moses uh, in the desert to turn back a scourge from the uh israelites as they were wandering yeah let me just double check um uh, the brazen sure serpent talk- yeah i'm reason yeah i know that that brazen serpent was the one that later got left to be destroyed at a different time i think you probably want to look up the serpent not uh, asa here uh oh yeah. no there it is you're right uh yeah, so so this is a <laughs> that is a really great answer to it. Yeah, this is a this is a question. I'm just going to read Wikipedia here. The question that pu- that puzzled Heinrich Uvalt uh, Uvalt maybe um, uh, who who was uh, a, um, a a Protestant theologian um, and others, uh, which also occupied the Talmudists, was where was the brazen serpent till the time of Hezekiah? Uh, Hezekiah being the person who destroys it later. They answered it in a very simple way. Asa and Jehoshaphat, well, when clearing away the idols, purposely left the brazen serpent behind in order that Hezekiah might also be able to do a praiseworthy deed in breaking it. This is, in my opinion, very silly. I, I mean, yes, but this is one of the things that happens when you're trying to reconcile the many different accounts of the Bible over the, you know... Yeah, yeah, no, I just I just think the idea of, okay, we're going to destroy all these idols, but I'm going to leave this one for our descendants to destroy so that they can also get some credit. Anyways, it, the Brazen Serpent does have a name, uh, Nehushtan, it's a, which is technically a derogatory name. Yeah. But I, I just think the Brazen Serpent is cool. It's a, it's a cool object. It is, I agree. Anyway. Anyways, we've gone completely off Yeah, track. we should move on. Uh, anyway, so, um, so, uh with an allusion to the book of kings we have now uh established that we're talking about the whale's penis here um which is now going to be butchered specifically not for oil no they're not going to be processing the actual like meat of it however what they do do is uh peel it (laughs) (laughs) i know Um, described as an african hunter the pelt of a boa so it's like a snake skin. Yeah, they, they peel it off as like a... a one-eyed snake skin. Ugh. They peel it off as like a cylinder and turn that inside out, stretch it out, and hang it to dry. 
And then uh, they remove some uh, section from the pointed end so it has a more uniform, like, uh, like width. Yeah. And uh, cut holes in it for arms, and a guy wears it. This is why it's called the cassock, this chapter. Yeah. It is, they have turned what I now know to be the whale's penis, as opposed to an unaccountable cone, into, like, a raincoat. Yeah, this, like, black, heavy robe that the mincer wears. Um, and the mincer is the person who chops up the horse pieces into pieces that actually can be put in the tripods, which are called Bible leaves. Yes, so you, um, you've got, like, a wooden horse, like a sawhorse. The horse pieces, so-called, are, like, I think propped up over the wooden horse, and then you slice off very thin, well, Bible leaves, like little thin sections, like sheets of paper, from the horse into the actual processing so that they process quicker and purer. Um, yeah. And uh, more of it is produced. Um, and I guess, like, the reason that he's wearing this obscene cassock... It's to protect him from the oil, surely. Well... Like the bubbling oil. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I, I don't know that it's... I don't think he's cutting it directly into the tripod, because he just... No, no, it's a... Hmm. Because what, what Ishmael says about the thing that the Bible leaves are being chopped into is, um, with a capacious tub beneath it, into which the minced pieces drop. And I feel like if it was the tripod, he would have called it the tripod. Yeah, no, you may be right. I'm just... I, I guess it's to protect him from the knife he's using? I, I think that has to be it, but I do think it's kind of weird here. Like, I I honestly don't think Ishmael has given us an account of the purpose of this, because I think he really wants to build the idea of what's happening here as a kind of, like, bizarre, like, almost pagan, um, and yeah, like... Yeah, we should just read the section, which yeah, is... Yeah, yeah. Arrayed in decent black, occupying a conspicuous pulpit, intent on Bible leaves. What a candidate for an archbishopric. What a lad for a pope were this mincer. Yeah, so, and I think, like, he has basically built up the idea of this whale's penis as a profane idol, and then it gets turned into a cassock and uh, used to produce Bible leaves. And I think he's so intent on this bizarre play of like religious ideas and mm. imagery that he's really not interested in explaining to us the purpose <laughs> of this custom yeah it's it's just immemorial to all his order so like you know at whalemen doing the mincing have always worn this uh this investiture alone will adequately protect him while employed in the particular functions of his office which is to say mincing and yeah i have no idea what he's being protected from is the knife just liable to bounce up at him and stab him through the heart what this definitely doesn't seem like the most, the situation in which someone using a whale spade is going to be the most in danger from no. it. No. I mean, well, maybe it's the one where you can just stand there with it, but like, you go through all this process where you can just go, and then sometimes you get a scar. Yeah, yeah. Like, no no cassock for the the men in the, um, the well, blubber room. No shoes for the men in the blubber room. <laughs> yeah. No idea what's why they're doing this, but uh, <sighs> and Ishmael doesn't want to tell us. No, no, for Ishmael, it's just important that they've skinned the penis like a trophy and now wear it. Yeah. <sighs> These are the, the forms and usages of the whalemen. I guess so. God, this, um... Also, here's a question. So, 
he cuts two slips for armholes at the other end, then lengthwise slips himself bodily into it. They're not like, it's not like he's wearing this over his head like a poncho. It's that he's like got two arms through it and then it's like down in front. I'm not clear. It's a, so it's a, it's a tube. It's mm. like maybe like a, like a oh, so he's, three foot long tube. Well, it, it's been well, it starts off, it's as tall as a Kentuckian, so, so it's... Like, uh, that That means maybe, like, over six foot, right? Yes. So, like, maybe oh, seven, eight cutting, feet long. Oh, then you're cutting, but then it gets, dry, it gets stretched, so it's twice as long, remember? No, twice as wide. Oh. It's being stretched out, oh, so the it's... width is being stretched out, so oh, it'll, right, like, go over his shoulders. Oh, right, because a person is about twice as wide as a whale penis. I, I guess. So, yeah, I guess he's basically wearing it like a smock. Yes. Like, it's just down the front, not coming up to his well, head. Well, no, 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 it's not, it's not just down his front, it's surrounding him, because it's a tube. The slits are just, like, cut, they're, they're just holes. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, but, okay, it, it is a tube, but it's not like it's being, it's sealed at the back or anything. It's, yes, so it, it is, it's a cylinder. No, because when you remove it from, when you skin a boa, you cut down the length of it. When you get snake skin, I think, you get a flat... Well, look. This done, he turns the pelt inside out like a pantaloon leg. It's a, mm. it's a tube. I don't know how they're getting it off <laughs> the, the, in the first place. I mean, but I don't think the whale is in a position to be gotten off anymore. But, but like, you walked into that one. Yeah, yeah. But, but, and then he also says, gives it a good stretching so as almost to double its diameter, not its width. Okay, yes. They're somehow managing to remove the pelt of the penis entirely without severing it because i assume that like if you get a snake skin i always thought that you got that as a flat serp sheet i i mean i you may be right i i I think that when ishmael is referring to the pelt of a boa he is actually kind of thinking about the way that i i don't know how snakes are skinned by hunters and i bet ishmael doesn't really either Mm. Uh, i think he's really thinking more about a snake shed shedding it which is going to be like a tube god so it's a full body penis sock that you stick your arms out of either side oh god this is the weirdest fucking thing i know it's It's so so, weird and we still don't know why I, I'm so glad that I've been able to explain to you, first of all, that it's a penis, and second of all, that it's a tube. <laughs> uh, 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 I want Stop Ishmael's wild ride. I want to get off. Well, are you ready to go to the Triworks? Yes, I really am. Uh, so chapter 96, the Triworks. Yeah, so now we are actually going to process some whale oil. We've been processing whale oil the entire time. I just yes. mean, at the end of this chapter, there's going to be some liquid whale oil. Congratulations. Pat, pat, pat. <laughs> <sighs> so. I do really like how it opens with like, by the way, here's a thing that should have been visible in your mental image of the Pequod at all times that you haven't had in your head. Yes. Uh, besides her hoisted boats, an American whaler is outwardly distinguished by her triworks, which is like this, basically a brick oven. Yeah, it's like a huge... Uh, like rectangular prism of brick that's it doesn't extend at all below the deck it's entirely on top of it on a special like tim especially heavily timbered part of the deck um and it's like bolted on with iron um like brackets and in general but it's just this big like small shack sized brick structure on top of the boat 
Yes. Um, and it has Presumably a- because, uh, at least my understanding is, if you put it down in the boat, you would almost certainly set the boat on fire. Yes. Like, clearly the issue of having to have, like, a huge, hot Furnace. fire... A furnace, furnace, a furnace on the boat and is he like a gets a lot of religious uh, iconography out of that. Let me tell well, you. Well, yeah, we'll get to that soon. But but basically, it, it is clear that the issue of having to have a huge furnace on a whale ship is like a real engineering problem. Mm-hmm. Um, an almost solid mass of brick and mortar, some ten feet by eight square and five in height. So it's not like taller than a person, but it is large. Yes, and uh, inside of the. Um, the triworks. There are two big pots, the tripots, where you actually, you know, put the blubber to be cooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, each of several barrels' capacities. They're large pots. Yes, they are. Um, and apparently, uh, when not in use, they are kept remarkably clean. Uh, these are like polished. Um, yeah, and specifically with soapstone and sand, which I think is a very nice little note. Because it must mean that they just have a bunch of soapstones on on there for polish on the ship for polishing their tripods. Yes, and uh, apparently this duty, like so many others, is an occasion for Ishmael to get distracted and <laughs> speculate on things. Okay, so when he describes, I want you to, I, I think I have a theory for what's going on when he describes what's what, uh, like um, distracts him in the tripod. Yeah. Uh, so he, he, do you want to read that section? Uh, I. I you could if you want. Sure, sure. I, I have. I've been it is reading. a place for profound mathematical meditation. It was in the left-hand tripod of the Pequod, with the soapstone diligently circling round me, that I was first indirectly struck by the remarkable fact that in geometry, all bodies gliding along the cycloid, cycloid, my soapstone, for example, will descend from any point in precisely the same time. So, what do you think is specifically going on when he describes this? Well, I mean, so I, I can, I know, or rather. I have a footnote telling me what he's talking about here geometrically. Yeah. But... It's not really something that I understand all that clearly, and I don't know how clear I'm going to be able to make it, therefore, like, over uh, the podcast. Um, yeah, the the basic statement, if... Uh, do you want me to summarize it, or do you well, want to? Well, I'll, I'll just read the, the note. Okay. Um, cycloid. A cycloid is a scalloped line that is created by tracing the path of one point on a rolling circle. So you can all go Google cycloid and see what that looks like. In a frictionless world, two balls released on different points of a cycloid curve would roll to the bottom at the same time, making it what mathematicians call a tautochrone or isochrone curve. I would not click through there. We No. Th- this... Topology is weird. Yeah, So, but I guess this basically just means, like, if you... Yeah. It... Sure, sure. Well, here's the thing. What Ishmael is describing is he dropped his soapstone and then it was hard to grab it because it was sliding down the side. And he was like, ah, I remember a math fact about this while he's scrabbling around inside the pot for his soapstone. So I'm not sure that that's true only because of the details of what this thing about dropping things on a tautochrone curve actually means. Like, I think that this, um, when you're talking about things being dropped along the cycloid. Yes. We're not talking about things sliding all the way to the bottom of the tripods, because the tripod is not a cycloid. Yes, it is. Go up. It's A tripod is one of these big, wide bowls. It's not a sphere. It's a, okay. it's a big, wide bowl. And I'm not saying it actually literally did that. What I'm saying is that, quote, the remark in all bodies gliding along the cycloid, 
my soapstone, for example. Okay, the way that I was picturing it, because, okay, here, I'm going to look up cycloid, because when we were just looking at uh, isochrone curve, we were looking at an image of, as Ben described it, kind of a wide, flat bowl shape. Yes. But what I was picturing was one of these. Oh, with the little loops on these. Yeah, a kind of picture of like a, like a kind of bouncing loop shape. Yeah, but I and think And I it's... was picturing Ishmael moving his soapstone along the inner edge in this kind of bouncing pattern. Hmm. Now, I think you're right. I'm just saying that I had the a particular picture of what a cycloid is in yeah. my head, and it was messing me up. Yeah, <sighs> I think that the, um, the tripods themselves are... Uh... He describes them as being like punch bowls. I think they are big and wide, and so they're shaped like a cycloid. Yeah, no, I think Ishmael is here suggesting that the, the, the tripod itself is a cycloid, uh, yes. which, you know. And I think that he specific, when he says the soapstone diligently circling round me, is he's describing that he dropped it and it was sliding back and forth along the, uh, along the cycloid because it's so well polished. And he was like, this reminds me of a math fact while failing to polish. Yes. No, 100, you know, I fully believe you because this definitely strikes me as one of the many occasions on which Ishmael's uh, speculations and, like, intellectual uh, <laughs> thoughts are preventing him from getting his job done. Uh, anyway, so... So, yeah, that's the, the weird thing about the shape. Also, um, something I'm... Tr I don't... In so the triworks get basically opened at the top during their use, right? Yeah, like there's, there's a big like hatch, a, hatch, a yeah. metal hatch that gets removed from the top. And also, I think, like... And then on the sides, there's access points for the furnaces uh, to be fed, and there's... Um, well, now we actually get to that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So he's describing the the kind of the shape of the tr uh, the, the things inside the triworks and how they're accessed and everything Ben just said is true. And then there's also a um, a reservoir of water underneath the f uh, the fires, uh, which is used to prevent basically the deck underneath it from catching on fire. Yeah, it's um, uh, constantly being replenished. Like, they presumably it's seawater that they're constantly just bringing up and pouring into the triworks via another access nozzle. Then it goes under the entirety of the furnaces and is constantly evaporating. It must be just boiling away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are no external chimneys. They open direct from the rear wall. So there's just, like, holes in the wall that smoke comes out of. Mm-hmm. Ah, and here let us go back for a moment, because Ishmael is allergic to doing things in the proper order. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, so, uh, this is, uh, the, the try, the trying out of the blubber from that whale that we were describing, that, that Stubb captured at, uh, Well, so it's, it was about nine o'clock at night that the Pequod's trials were first started on this present voyage. Oh, so I, This must have been the earliest whale that Stubb right. killed. Stubb also killed it. So once again, Ishmael's really bad at things, at telling a story, because he's, it's definitely set up to conflate. It's, frankly, I think it's a brilliant move by Melville, is that because this is Stubb, this is also Stubb's whale, and we're sort of skipping we're saying let us go back a bit and talking about the first time the triworks if you think about it a little you realize this has to be the first whale stub got because they definitely processed it but because ishmael doesn't want to think about left and right heads and all the stuff that went into that uh 
he, and he doesn't and he didn't want to interrupt things earlier with the triworks then now the triworks arrive after a second whale but we're talking about the first whale yeah yeah i think you're right um <sighs> so they uh they start up the triworks um in which which uh they they at first they kindle the flames with wood uh however pretty quickly uh they're able to use a different fuel because as they you know try out the bible leaves um the oil you know is is expelled from them and they're left with these scraps or fritters which have been mentioned before yeah they were previously compared to donuts yeah um and they you know these are just kind of like cooked like uh fried like strips of whale just flesh. imagine chicken nuggets Ugh. just horrible and yeah they are still oily enough that they will catch fire if lit so they can be used as a very powerful uh fuel to the furnace uh so that like a plethoric burning martyr or a self-consuming misanthrope once ignited the whale supplies his own fuel and burns by his own body uh, and this does mean that the smoke from the triworks is like the smoke of like burning flesh it is a cremation smoke yes and and he uh he compares it to i mean first of all he compares it to his at least his idea of like a hindu funeral pyre yeah. um but also to uh the the it's... smoke of the fires of judgment burning the unrighteous and also the smoke of the pit of hell yep it smells like the left wing of the day of judgment it is an argument for the pit um, which i think by the way he doesn't mean it is an argument for hell being like just he just literally means it's an argument that hell exists yes like if this kind like, of you horrible smelling, fire yeah specifically the way i take it is like literally smelling it is like sensory experience of hell yeah like if you smelled this in hell you'd be like oh yeah i believe this is hell yes uh it's a very odd turn of phrase it is yeah. but it's very evocative yeah and uh he also compares um you know the ship with this horrible fire burning in it to uh the fire ships used by a um uh a a greek naval officer who who fought in the war of independence against uh turkey um using fire ships um, yeah which is when you set a ship on fire and you ram it into another ship to destroy both of them exactly which if your ships are more plentiful or at the very least uh less expensive than the other ones is a winning strategy yep uh as anyone who's played age of empires 2 may know um <laughs> but uh the Actually, I don't know if that was in Age of Empires 2. I just remember ships being on fire there, but that might not have been fire ships. Anyways, the um, this is also specifically uh, at night because it takes they the uh, processing begins at nine. Uh, it means that by midnight the works are in full operation. So the only light on the ship, or rather the majority of the light on the ship, is this gouting fire from the furnace. The lower rigging lit up. The smoke pouring out. Um, and he has this line, which I find really, uh, he also references Greek fire, though, uh, a different fire than the one used in the fire ship, since Greek fire is the, uh, you know, supposed chemical compound that created effectively a sticky burning, uh, naphtha or napalm, um, in ancient times, the exact, uh, formula for which we do not know. Anyways, uh, the burning ship drove on as if remorselessly commissioned to some vengeful deed. As if? <laughs> as if? This is this entire book is about the ship being remorselessly commissioned to some vengeful deed. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. 
Um, and we will get to that. I'm just like, as if, really. You're going to try and smuggle that as if in there, Ishmael. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is, and uh, there's even more kind of like resemblance to hell because I mean, yeah, like an entire page of it, if not more. Because uh, they, so the the hatch that's been removed is like now, uh, like in front of the, um, you know, in front of the the parts of the triworks that can be used to like stoke the fire. It's it's the hearth now, uh, and the harpooners are the ones who stoke the fire, uh, and they have like poles that they're using to pitch the scraps into pitch the scraps into the fire and when or, you say pronged poles you mean pitchforks yeah like they're they basically have, pitchforks yeah they have pitchforks which they're using to like put blubber into the pots and like stir that up or or stir up the fire and uh, it's worth remembering that the harpooners are like the pagans on the ship that's sort of their role in the symbolic play so like they're you know queequeg uh, and tashtego and so on yeah, and he, he at no point actually literally says in this paragraph that they seemed like devils in hell I mean, with pitchforks. However, I think the analogy is very clear. He describes them as Tartarian shapes of the pagan harpeneers. Yeah, no, that's actually, you're right. That's pretty direct. Yeah, and so... I, I'm just saying he hasn't, uh, he, he didn't shy away from very literally calling pirates demons earlier on. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's not quite going there no, now, but, but... I mean... He's just being very flowery about it, but he's absolutely saying they look like devils. And this whole paragraph and whole section further develops on this uh, sense of hellishness. Yeah. Um, you know, he describes the um, uh, the watch who are sitting and watching the, the burning fire on the windlass as a couch. And how they, um, you know, covered in smoke and sweat with matted beards, their teeth lighting up. And, you know... Um, God, he has this amazing sense, you know, all these were strangely revealed in the capricious emblazonings of the work. So everything is like uh, lighting up in different angles and going dark as the uh, the fire sort of sputters and hisses. And also the ship is rocking, so the oil is spattering and bubbling in these tripods. I'm sure it gets everywhere and can do a horrible thing if it lands on you. Yeah, the, the, the harpooners are definitely like in imminent danger of the fire, the flames licking up at them or the oil, like... Uh, burning them mm. god also most of this paragraph is one sentence yeah that's uh can, can i read it yeah, sure so this is talking about the you know the sort of weirdly illuminated uh the... sailors on the windlass as they narrated to each other their unholy adventures their tales of terror told in words of mirth as their uncivilized laughter forked upwards out of them like the flames from the furnace as to and fro in their front the harpooners wildly gesticulated with their huge pronged forks and dippers as the wind howled on and the sea leaped and the ship groaned and dived and yet steadfastly shot her red hell further and further into the blackness of the sea in the night and scornfully champed the white bone in her mouth and viciously spat round her on all sides then the rushing pequod freighted with savages and laden with fire and burning a corpse and plunging into that blackness of darkness seemed the material counterpart to her monomaniac commander's soul it's good it's really good yeah it's that red hell 
laden with fire and burning a corpse. It's very oh. good. I have like one, I guess, almost like technical question here, yeah. which is when he says scornfully champed the white bone. Oh, in that's her mouth. the froth in the front of the ship. The white bone is the uh, like the the bow wave. Okay, it's that I was she's wa- making good time. I was wondering whether that was the tiller because he mentions uh, in two paragraphs from here that the tiller is made of yeah, a yeah, jawbone. Yeah, yeah, the tiller's a jawbone. We've known that from early on. Most of a lot of the pequod is whalebone of various kinds whale's bones and also whale bone the substance that is not whale's bones but uh i don't think that would be in her mouth because the tiller is at the stern of the ship this is uh at her bow it's the bow wave and i believe white bone is in fact a term for like the curling white foam at the tip of a wave especially one pushed by like i think that's an, an existing slightly poetic term yeah like the like referring to the the oars in the boats as the white ash yeah that and, makes sense. And so the white bone being the, um, you know, the the bow wave, it means that she's making, you know, she's barreling down through the night. They're going quite quickly, even as they're, you know, uh, stoking the fires of hell on board. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, after that long paragraph of intense imagery, Ishmael says, So it seemed to me as I stood at her helm. So he's currently steering the ship while all this is going on which like man i don't know whose decision it was (laughs) to let ishmael take the helm in the middle of the night look you need to do something with him (laughs) uh and uh he is like by kind of as he like witnesses all this like weird the continual sight of the fiend shapes before me capering half in smoke and half in fire yeah this this basically as so many other experiences that Ishmael has kind of like lulls him into a weird stupor and he actually falls asleep. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing to me that he's like, ah, oh, yes, I'm staring into the open mouth of hell. Time, time for a snooze. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that the idea is kind of that like he is in this like unreal environment. Mm, yeah, it's like a weird nightmarish thing and so he slips into nightmares. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. But uh, obviously... Mm. Also, also, uh, just something to note here. Since this happened before the, um, like, before the previous chapter, possibly, it's unclear if the, the, um, squeeze of the hand is after, no, the squeeze of the hand is immediately after Stubb's second whale, or maybe third, whatever. It's the more recent whale, whereas this is after the first whale, which means that this anxiety about Ishmael, about, sorry, about Ahab's purpose is the very anxiety that will be set to rest by the squeeze of the hand. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is bizarre. It is bizarrely structured, but I think it does very well to... um, It means that Ishmael can express this feeling of incredible ease and then immediately have it taken away, despite the fact that sort of structurally in the actual events of the narrative we don't see his immediate reactions after squeeze of the hand. So he might've been floating on clouds for like a week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, as you would expect to happen, if you fall asleep at the tiller, <laughs> it goes wrong. It's a horrible thing to happen to you. Um, and, and he suddenly started awake. God, I hate doing that. I hate that feeling of starting awake. It happens to me sometimes when I'm falling asleep, I'll just like, my leg will kick and I'll wake up and I'll just be like, ah, ah. Uh, and in this case, to be clear, it's not Ishmael's leg that's kicking him. It's the tiller itself. It, like, smacks him in the side. Yes. Um, and uh, he also starts to hear the sails shaking in the wind, which, I mean, essentially he has 
because he's let the tiller drift. Uh, yeah, no, he's he's let the tiller drift, and so the sails, especially on one of these old um, ships or even just a large ship, the it's the uh, helmsman's duty to keep the sails uh, properly full because okay, on a small boat you can just adjust the sails and be at the correct uh, you know amount in or out for your heading and get the best get the wind properly but on a ship like the pequod once you've set your sails it's the helmsman's job to keep the course that will keep those sails filled because you can't as easily just adjust them by hand you need to like you know wind windlasses and move uh, tackles around and so on so uh and the humming is like the little the flapping of the edge of the sail which means that it's um it's luffing the um uh, sail is not far enough in, or possibly it's uh, pinching. I can't quite tell from his description, which means the sail is too far in. Boats! Yeah, uh, and uh, he, he like, realizes that, that something is going wrong, but he can't see the compass in front of him. Which is should be, like, literally directly in front of him. And he um, can't even uh, see the binnacle lamp. Nothing seemed before me but a jet gloom, now and then made ghastly by flashes of redness. Uppermost was the impression that whatever swift, rushing thing I stood on was not so much bound to any haven ahead as rushing from all havens astern. A stark, bewildered feeling as of death came over me. So he's like, he can see nothing, he's surrounded by smoke and darkness and fire, uh, he's, he's in a void. Yeah, um... And, uh, it, it, he, he does manage to grab the tiller, but it seems like it's, uh, backwards. In some enchanted way inverted. Uh, and this, I think, I think that's kind of the clue that allows him to realize that what's happened is that he's just turned around. <laughs> yeah, he, well, he, like, fell asleep and, like, turned to look back. And then when he woke up, he was just staring off into the o darkened ocean. And, uh, that allows him to, you know, he turns around, he can see the lamp, he can see the compass, he can get it back together. Just in time to prevent the vessel from flying up into the wind, so it must have been beginning to luff. And very probably capsizing her. Yes. Uh, so yes, uh, the Pequod's journey almost ended with Ishmael falling asleep at the wheel. Or he, Tiller, they don't have a wheel. Yeah, yeah. Oh god, then he's, he turns this into a general philosophical exhortation. Yes. Look not too long in the face of the fire, O oh man. Never dream with thy hand on the hill. Turn not hand on the, on the helm. Turn not thy back to the compass. Accept the first hint of the hitching tiller. Believe not the artificial fire when its red redness makes all things look ghastly. Tomorrow, in the natural sun, the skies will be bright. Those who glared like devils in the forking flames, the morn will show in far other, at least gentler relief. The glorious, golden, glad sun, the only true lamp, all others but liars. Except right. what so. he immediately goes from then is uh, to declare that the sun hides not, you know, the desert, the swamp, all of the, the blast. It may show humans in better relief, but the world, well, the sun hides not the ocean, which is the dark side of this earth and which is two thirds of this earth. Yeah. Honestly, that gives me a chill. That sentence just gives me a chill. It's yeah, it, really good. It's a very interesting motion here from, like, the, the terror of, like, waking up and being turned around and getting the tiller back together and kind of, like, reassuring himself and, and being philosophical about it and saying, well, the sun will come out and all these, like, hellish visions that I'm having will, will be disp dispersed. And then kind of remembering, well, 
What does the, the sun really show? There. Right? Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's specifically distinguishing between like his fellows who he's like, yes, the sun, the true lamp will show them in better light. And, you know, I'm very pro sun as, as we know on this podcast. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, the sun will show like this better human dignity, this, this, uh, the real, you know, human quality, but the earth itself, the world is full of dreadful things. Again, the ocean is the dark side of the world, and it is two thirds of the world. Yes, uh, and 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 uh, he he uh, he says I think this very interesting thing. So therefore, that mortal man who hath more of joy than sorrow in him, that mortal man cannot be true, not true or undeveloped. So like someone who is you know basically happy doesn't really understand the world, or yeah. in some way is like deceived. Or is false themselves, is uh, presenting themselves falsely. Yes, and uh, and he goes on to talk about, you know, the Bible, and in particular, uh, the books believed to be written by Solomon, um, and, and the uh, the kind of, like, depressing stuff in Ecclesiastes. Yep, yep. All the... is vanity. All! That's an all, that's in all caps, all. Yes. With a period, not an exclamation point, which I think shows a small amount of restraint, but <laughs> I think makes it more effective. And a uh, very strange line here. This willful world hath not got hold of unchristian Solomon's wisdom yet. I mean, I think what he means by that is that, like, uh, you know, Solomon's wisdom is, like, pre-Christian. It is, like, yes. ancient and, and fundamental. And yet the world willfully still refuses to acknowledge it. Yes. I also love this phrase. Ecclesiastes is the fine hammered steel of woe. Yep. I just think that's a cool sentence. Um, and uh, he makes up a guy to get mad at. Uh, <laughs> but he who dodges hospitals and jails and walks fast crossing graveyards and would rather talk of operas than hell calls Cowper, Young, Pascal, Rousseau, poor devils all of sick men. Those being uh, hymn writers, poets, philosophers, who I guess Ishmael sees as like depressing. Yeah, um, yeah. And throughout a carefree lifetime swears by Rabelais... A uh, different philosopher, an optimistic one, as <laughs> passing wise and therefore jolly. Not that man is fitted to sit down on tombstones and break the green damp mold with unfathomably wondrous Solomon. So basically, he's like anybody who uh, takes on a kind of optimistic philosophy and refuses to view, you know, hospitals, jails, graveyards. God, Ishmael is incredibly easily influenced by his surroundings because like remember that this is a he's a universalist uh he doesn't believe in or uh yeah he doesn't believe in hell yeah no he he has definitely in the past indicated that he doesn't believe in hell Hell is just a dyspepsia and yeah. yet at the same time rather talk of operas than hell does he mean that you should be talking about hell but not believe in it i i i mean i think one thing that he could believe that would in some ways be consistent Although I do think you're correct that he is basically inconsistent on these things. But he could believe on some level that hell exists and it is the triworks, you know? Like, he doesn't mm. have to believe in an eternal punishment after death. To, to believe... speak of hell in a metaphorical or meaningful sense. Yes. And, and like, I think this also plays into the thing you were talking about where, like, uh, you know, I think there is a seeming kind of contradiction between the, like, uh, bliss that he was talking about in A mm. Squeeze of the Hand and, like, this horror and woe except that as you said he's made it clear that it's like it's your fellow men who are uh beautiful and kind even if maybe in the darkness and the fire they appear to be devils but the world itself is evil yeah no i i think that you can 
you can certainly get some real Gnostic hours out of this one. Yeah, and uh, and I think even more so in, in the last couple paragraphs as well, which, um, <sighs> do you mind if I read these? Uh, sure, go ahead. Uh, but even Solomon, he, he's turning again, right? Because he was like, ah, oh, everything will be better in the sunlight. Oh no, but what if we see the ocean in the sunlight? And now he's thinking about Solomon and he kind of brings himself back up. But even Solomon, he says, the man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain, i.e. even while living, in the congregation of the dead. Give not thyself up then to fire, lest it invert thee, deaden thee, as for the time it did me. There is a wisdom that is woe, but there is a woe that is madness. And there is a Catskill eagle in some souls that can alike dive down into the blackest gorges and soar out of them again and become invisible in the sunny spaces. And even if he forever flies within the gorge, that gorge is in the mountains, so that even in his lowest swoop, the mountain eagle is still higher than other birds upon the plain, even though they soar. Um, yeah, so first of all, this is just a really good chapter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but secondly, I really love this metaphor because it's certainly at least a little bit about Ahab. Yeah, like, no, I think because so. Ahab's woe is absolutely madness. And um, so this idea of the Catskill Eagle in the soul is like someone who can both experience, you know, the depths of despair and, you know, these darker philosophies, but is grappling with them is on some level higher. And then, you know, can also soar back out into the sun, uh, the sunlight and, you know, be elevated and be happy and joyful is still higher than even if they should never soar out of the gorge than lesser souls that, while happy, while soaring, still do not uh, engage with that higher and more mountainous region. Yeah. Um. And it's interesting to specifically connect it back to, you know, when he speaks about um, not so much bound to any haven ahead as rushing from all state havens astern while he's inverted at the helm, that's describing the Lee Shore. That's describing Bulkington, who is also at the same time the most noble of men, um, you know, uh, from, you know, up from thy ocean perishing leaps thy apotheosis. So there's a way in which, to some extent, it's not so much the fleeing from safety, the uh, engagement with darkness and so on. That's, you know, it, it, you sail through the darkened gorge, but it's sort of embracing that and doing it with a certain nobility is higher and more meaningful in all ways than petty happiness that does not engage with these greater you know experiences yeah and i think there is almost here like a slight implication because i think fundamentally the catskill eagle especially the idea of the eagle who even if he forever flies within the gorge i think mm -hmm. that is ahab yes but i also think there's a suggestion even though he wraps up with saying that gorge is in the mountains so even someone who who is sort of forever caught within like a, a a dark view of life if that person is kind of like elevated elevated that is a fundamentally like higher state of being however he did just say give not thyself up then to fire i think ishmael does on some level think that it is better to dive into those depths and then surface yes. again into the sun i think that is basically true but i think he's i think he's giving that as like a, a health admonition i think this is again We've seen this a lot in recent chapters, and I'm sure this is going to be continuing through the book, that Ishmael is really, um, and Melville really, is really enjoys turning and turning again in these conceptual sequences, in these conceits. So, for example, he's like, you know, there's a wisdom that is woe, there's a woe that is madness. 
but there is also this higher state of being. So he's talking about, on the one hand, don't be like Ahab, you know, don't turn to the fire, don't convince yourself of the demonism of the world, don't, do not engage with this knowledge in some sense too much, because it will destroy you. But at the same time, if you are capable of engaging with it at all, you are in some way higher. You are a cat, you, you know, there's a Catskill eagle uh, of, um, in some souls. So I think that it's ultimately ambiguous whether it is better to be, say, Ahab or Ishmael, because I think Ishmael is pretty clear that he's not as elevated a mind as Ahab. Yeah, but he is on the, like, Ishmael is, on the one hand, clearly not capable, not as capable of Ahab of, like, really existing in, like, the depths of the horror of the world. But at the same time, Ishmael is capable of surfacing from that in a way yeah. that Ahab is not. Yeah, I mean, I think to go to Wales, I think Ahab's catabasis does not have an end. He simply goes down and further and further. Ishmael returns up to the surface. Yeah. And Ishmael certainly thinks that's a healthier way to be, but I don't know if the book wants to tell us which is more, like, philosophically correct at this yeah. time. And I mean, I do think that, like, it matters, you know, when he quotes Solomon here, um, I want to kind of explain this a little bit. Because, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the actual proverb here is, uh, the man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. And I think Ishmael is kind of reversing it in a way, and saying, okay, the man who remains in the congregation of the dead, that is, one who kind of dwells on mm -hmm. death and hell and suffering, even during life, that man wandereth out of the way of understanding. So, like, to to immerse yourself in woe is, in some sense, to... Uh, to go mad. Yeah, to, to stray from the path of wisdom. There's a woe that is madness. Yeah, and, and I, I, I just, you know, he's citing Solomon for this, so I, I don't think that it is purely a kind of, well, it's nicer to live this way. I mean, sure, I guess what I mean is that I think that it's possible, and because this is a, a genuine way people often interact with philosophy, it's possible that the argument is this is a more healthy way to live and be. There may be, like, the implication of that sentence, if you carry it through, there is a wisdom that is woe, but there is a woe that is madness, can be shortened. There is a wisdom that is madness. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, I, I mean, well, okay, I don't know. Not quite. Because he doesn't say, wisdom is woe, but woe is madness. There is a wisdom that is woe, but also separately there is a woe that is madness. But I think I... the implication here is that you can, there is a kind of slope where you go from wisdom to woe, and then you deepen your woe See, and it becomes madness. I think, but... it's, I think it's more particularized. Some wisdom is woe. Not all wisdom, but there is a wisdom that is woe. And there is a woe that is madness. So some woe is also is madness, and some wisdom is woe, but we don't. Ne you're right, we don't necessarily know that the wisdom that is woe is also the woe that is madness, but I think in the depiction of Ahab we have an argument. Again, I think ambiguity is fundamental to this. We have an argument for... The wisdom being woe being madness, that this is there is in fact a wisdom that is madness. But if that's correct, then it complicates everything Ishmael and certainly Starbuck sort of wants to believe about the world. And I think ultimately, again, the reader is left to piece together this elaborate drama of whales and woe and wisdom and madness and try to 
you know, ultimately determine what is the case. And I don't think we're just going to get it spelled out. No, I, I fully agree. I was just trying to argue for the ambiguity because yeah, I, yeah. I felt like you were you were making it into like a more straightforward syllogism. Okay, I, I'm just saying that you can construct the syllogism. And I think the way that section is written is intended to bring that syllogism to mind. Ishmael never says there is a wisdom that is madness. But I think that the way it's constructed leads the reader to that possibility directly, even if it's not stated. I mean, I agree. I just think that the specifics of the word, using the, using a, uh, I think yeah, that rather matters. Than the... I also think using but matters, because that is like a, a poetic turn. Sure, right? sure. So he is, he is not, it is not a straightforward connection. It is a, a, a connection that has like a, a point of a departure. Point, a point of no return, you might almost say. Right? Yeah. I, um, and that is obviously one that, that, I'm, I'm Ahab just... has passed, and I think you're right that we are not left with a consistent perspective on whether that is fundamentally wrong. I just think it's important to retain the possibility that Ishmael's way of perceiving these things is actually preferable, and not just preferable in a kind of like, well, it'll keep you living, but like in an actual philosophical sense. I guess. I, I think that this is... A large part of this section is not mentioning Ahab really explicitly. And when something in this book is really obviously present but not mentioned, it's because Ishmael doesn't have the words to communicate it. And so I think that Ahab, while Ahab is, like, obviously Ahab is the Catskill Eagle, right? Like, he's, at the very least, the, the one that always dwells within the gorges. Yes, I'm no, not I, saying, I agree. I'm not saying he's the only Catskill Eagle in the book. But no, definitely. The idea of the Catskill Eagle who constantly dwells within the gorge but is still in the mountain, that's totally Ahab. Uh, and I also think that the thing you drew up or you brought to mind earlier, um, this was earlier in the chapter, right? Where it was yeah. like as if. There's that as if, but then later he says, you know, in this same uh, chapter, the Triworks, uh, he does say, you know, um, the material counterpart of her monomaniac commander's soul. Monomaniac commander's soul. Yeah, so Ahab is in this chapter. He is, but he's only very briefly. Yes. But he's still the central figure of it. Like, in a way, all of the Pequot, all of the fire, Ishmael's confusion, all of this is solely being driven towards the characterization of Ahab in this particular chapter. Everything has built to this idea of the burning soul driving on in that, again, just fantastic um, sentence that goes on for far too long, <laughs> describing all of it to characterize with all of these elements the single figure at the center. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, Ahab is totally, like, central to this chapter, but also kind of almost unmentioned. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, you know, I... I think we've chewed this over enough. I yeah. think uh Yeah, let's let's move on. But ultimately uh, I don't think it will easily resolve. Yeah, no, it, it and it's good that it doesn't. It, the the ambiguity is good. Yep. Um, and then there's chapter ninety seven. The lamp. It's about a lamp. Yeah, this is three paragraphs wrong long. It's about a lamp. Uh and this is I love lamp. <laughs> Isn't Sorry. that a fucking family guy joke? No, Anchorman. Oh, okay, never mind. I think I've I've never seen Anchorman either. It's fine. Sure. I I love lamp is just a cute phrase and it has a particular like uh, energy in the way it's delivered that I enjoy. Okay, sure. Anyhow, yeah. So this is he moves on from the triworks uh, to the the forecastle where the off duty watch are sleeping, uh, where uh, 
interestingly, they are like fully illuminated by constantly burning lamps because, um, you know, uh, on other types of ships, on, on merchant vessels, um, oil is pretty scarce and sailors just have to manage in the dark during the night. Mm -hmm. Uh, but on a whale, on a whaling ship, uh, they have so much oil, uh, yep. that basically any little bottle you can get can be a lamp if you want yep. to. Yep, yep. You go to the, uh, cooler of the triwork. So the cooler is like the copper basin that they pour the having refined it oil into, and then it just, like, cools there until it can be casked. And while it's cooling, he describes it as being like a, a trough of ale, and you've got, like, a mug. You can just walk up, dip it in, and walk away with a, a lamp full of precious oil. Yeah. Um... And it's like, it's like, like, fresh and, and like, just processed and pure. The purest of oil, and it's unmanuf- well, I think it's only, so it's somewhat manufactured. Like, this is the pure, the pure oil that will be, uh, manufactured in other ways on shore to make different grades of oil and so on. Right, like, this is, this is basically, this is the best quality of oil that is actually usable. It has been processed enough to actually be liquid oil, but nothing else has been done to it, and therefore it is, like- the purest pure. of oil in its unmanufactured and therefore unvitiated state, a fluid unknown to solar, lunar, or astral contrivances ashore. Yeah. Which, does solar, lunar, or astral here mean... I don't know what he means by that. Yeah, there's no citation here. I, I, I think he's kind of suggesting, like, that, like, no... N like, that no kind of uh, influence in any way produces something like this ashore? I guess. Yes. Just a fluid unknown to solar, lunar, or astral contrivances. What is a solar contrivance? Is it the sun? Because that's the only true lamp. You just said so. Y yeah. Last chapter. Uh, certainly, I, like, but what, if solar and lunar means, like, um, like, day and night usage lamps, what the hell is astral? I mean, he may actually be saying, weirdly enough, that the light from this oil is actually, like, purer than celestial light ashore? Yeah, but why ashore? You still get sunlight on a boat. I, yeah, I, hmm. <sighs> this one's a mystery to me. Yeah, this is, this is obscure. Yeah, um, I will say that I really, um, I do really like the imagery in this chapter, like, uh, also, but the whaleman, as he seeks the food of light, so he lives in light. He makes his birth in Aladdin's lamp and lays him down in it, so that in the pitchiest night the ship's black hull still houses an illumination. And I have to take that as, you know, in the immediate wake of the triworks. Um, you know, Ish Ishmael loves to return to this image of, like, the, the inland part of the soul that is untouched by storms without, or, like, the island within the soul. Or, But in this case, it's the light within the pequod, the idea that there is still... Not with Ahab, whose lamp is like this low-hanging thing under which he scrawls his charts, but even sleeping in the forecastle, the sailors, there's a certain kind of like innocence or, or glory or shining thing that is still bright and pure and like unimaginably perfect in a certain way that is hidden away within the Pequod's black bulk. Yeah, yeah. I think that's accurate. Uh, and so I think that's a, a strange little aside and metaphor that it fits to Ishmael's general uh, conception of the world that is, I think, in a little bit of contrast to the Catskill Eagle and to the idea of this, you know, high but tragic soul. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, but also the Pequod is so much Ahab that maybe this is also a thing Ahab has. Who knows? 
his soul does constantly try to get out and then gets dragged back in. Yeah, I don't know. <sighs> Shall we uh, get going? Move on? Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, The Lamp's a short chapter. Yeah, so the last chapter we're doing today, 98, Stowing Down and Clearing Up. Uh, and as we alluded to before, this is, you know, the end of the oil processing procedure where they are literally stowing the oil and, like, cleaning up the deck. Yep, and he's saying that, you know, already has it been related how the great Leviathan is far off described from the masthead, how he is chased over the watery moors and slaughtered in the valleys of the deep, and then goes on to, like, basically list the steps of the whale being captured and produced, and using some quite flowery language that I quite like, which he says, In due time he is condemned to the pots, and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abdek, Abednego, his spermaceti oil and bone pass unscathed through the fire. And it's like, well, unscathed is a way of putting it. Yeah. And then uh, he, uh, yeah, so this is this is the last thing. Um, the, the oil has to be stowed. And um, they, uh, they, they decant the still warm oil into casks. Mm -hmm. uh, which then just kind of roll around the deck, it sounds like. Well, I think what's happening there is you've got a big, heavy object that's round or slidey, and a bunch of people trying to hold it in place and hammer in the stays and coop it so that it's like a, it's a bound barrel. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it will stay sealed at the top and bottom all the way through this long voyage. But during the process, like, what do you, you can't roll it on its side. You're cooping in the top thing. You can't really hold, all you can do to hold it in place is just have a bunch of people holding it. So it's this mad situation. Yeah. Um, and then they, uh, they, they stow all the casks uh, in, in the very bottom of the hold um, and, and close it up. And uh, now, at this point... Um, it's time to actually clean everything, which is presumably just, like, covered in, like, oil and, and soot. Blood. And blood, yes. Gore. Uh, but according to Ishmael, after a couple of days, uh, were it not for the telltale boats and triworks, you would all but swear you trod some silent merchant vessel with a most scrupulously neat commander. So they just get it all cleaned up within yep. a couple days. Well, he argues that part of this is that the uh, sperm oil effectively functions as a soap. Yes, and, and in particular, also, they're able to make lye from the mm. uh, the ashes of That the makes scraps. sense. Yeah, that's, lay is lye. No, um, it's, it's lye in my book. Oh, well, it's spelled L-E-Y in my text. Anyway, huh. um... Anyway, so yeah, they're able to use that to, like, scrape and, and scrub everything. Yep, yep. And so you've got this immense cleaning. Um, and I do like his description of the whalers after all this, is that they all personally clean themselves. They get, uh, you know, finally issued the immaculate deck, fresh and all aglow as bridegrooms new leaped out from out of the daintiest Holland, which... Um, weird stereotype about Holland. No, I, well, oh, apparently, okay. uh, according to PowerMobyDick.com, the daintiest Holland refers to fine Dutch bedsheets. Oh, okay. Well, that's slightly less weird about the Dutch than he has been the entire book so far. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, he, he now describes, like, the, the cleaned up whalemen as being, like, very kind of dainty and, and delicate, um, now, with elated step, they pace the planks in two and twos and threes, and humorously discourse of parlors, sofas, carpets, and fine cambrics. Propose to mat the deck. Think of having hangings to the top. Object not to taking tea by moonlight on the piazza of the forecastle. 
Um, to hint to such musked mariners of oil and bone and blubber were little short of audacity. They know not the thing you distantly allude to. Away and bring us napkins. Yeah, yeah, it's very goofy. It's like, uh, uh like I, they're all little Lord Fauntleroys. Yeah, I, I do not believe that Stubb is like this. I don't believe that Queequeg is like this, or, uh, Ahab is like this, or... <laughs> Maybe Starbuck is like this, but I think he's maintaining his Protestant dignity. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, as Ishmael has to admit, uh, if they spot a whale... And all, there, are, there are still three men on the mastheads. All of this is going to get thrown out the window and everything is going to become, like, filthy and oily again. Yep. Um, you know, if you catch an oil, it will, again, soil the old oaken furniture and drop at least one small grease spot somewhere. It makes it sound like whales are just slightly rude guests like not necessarily intentionally rude but just like slightly untidy yeah and and uh he you know recognizes how like uh exhausting this is if you do happen to like spot a whale immediately as soon as you finish cleaning you're just gonna be going through to like working straight for a week again yeah and he he mentions that basically he's he the way he describes it is that um the labors of the Triworks know no night. It's, you know, it's 24 hours work. You might sleep, but someone on the ship is constantly uh, working away at the processing of the whale. Yes, and, um, and, you know, oh, my friends, but this is man-killing. Like, this is hard labor. Yet this is life. Yeah, and, and, uh, he, he, uh, so this next, the end of this paragraph, the end of this paragraph and the next paragraph, uh, I feel like there are two different metaphors going on here at once mm -hmm. uh, and one of them is about just kind of something he's brought up before like in the early chapters when he talked about whale ships like coming into harbor and then leaving again the idea that like people in life are just kind of constantly going out to one project uh, you know doing one bit of work and then as soon as it's done you have to do the next thing. yeah yeah the um you know, uh, having done what's necessary to survive and to, you know, gain wisdom and to move forward and then having, you know, managed to get yourself, you know, clean and calm and having having dealt with whatever storm you just got through, there's another one. Yes, but uh, but I want to read also this, this last sentence of this uh, second to last paragraph. And This is just the last paragraph. Or do you mean... The, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. I thought you meant the last paragraph. For hardly have we mortals by long toilings extracted from the world's vast bulk its small but valuable sperm, and then with weary patience cleansed ourselves from its defilements and learned how to live here in clean tabernacles of the soul, hardly is this done when, there she blows, the ghost is spouted up, and away we sail to fight some other world and go through young life's old routine again. So that there is him just expressing a belief in reincarnation. Well... Yes. Okay, there's actually three things going on, right? Because there's the thing about constant activity in life. Yep. There's the thing about uh, reincarnation, which he also makes explicit in the next paragraph yeah. with the, oh, the metempsychosis, which means reincarnation. Yeah, the, the return of the soul to a new body. I also think there's a sexual metaphor here. Huh. I, I like The ghost is spouted up, again, up in a way we sail to fight some other world. I, I think, like, the ghost is spouted up is like a like, reference to, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily literally meant to be about an erection, but mm. I, I think it is about, like, the reinvigoration of, like, spirit and life in a person. 
Um, yeah, I... Hmm. I can't tell hmm. for sure. It, like, this is one of those places where it's genuinely hard for me to say. Yeah, the, the sperm really makes it hard to determine whether this is, in fact, a sexual metaphor or if we're just sort of predisposed to find one. So he is talking about making the world extracting its small but valuable sperm and then cleansing ourselves from yeah 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 and insisting that we're all done with this and so on but then there she blows <laughs> like i i'm not sure but i think it might be there yeah i i sure look this is definitely just at the very edge of liminality of visibility it's like i i can see the bones there i can see the like the idea that you're thinking, and you might be right, but if so, it is subtler than Ishmael normally is. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I totally believe you. Um, but then there is that last paragraph where he explicitly makes it reincarnatory. And I will say that we, um, the ghost is spouted up in a way we sail to fight some other world is also very explicitly reincarnation. Yeah, I know. 100% reincarnation is here. Did I say reincarnatory? Ugh. I, I think I'm the did, worst. Yes. Um, and uh, he, he even, like, suggests that Pythagoras, who is, you know, one of the, like, ancient philosophers who believed in reincarnation. Yeah, he specifically was, was very famous in his, the, the, you know, cult of Pythagoreanism, or, uh, was uh, very set on uh, reincarnation. You know, they called it metempsychosis, which is where we get the term, I think. Yeah, uh, and uh, he suggests that, that Pythagoras has been uh, reincarnated as, like, a, uh, uh, basically as a ship's boy. Um, yeah, so the specific uh, paragraph is, oh, the metempsychosis, which, uh, my second favorite Decembris line, <sighs> um, anyways, oh, the metempsychosis, oh, Pythagoras, that in bright Greece 2,000 years ago did die so good, so wise, so mild. I sailed with thee along the Peruvian coast last voyage, and foolish as I am, taught thee, a green simple boy, how to splice a rope. And it's interesting, because I think this is him basically expressing a belief in metempsychosis and a belief in um, sort of consistent and uh, and returning sort of experience. You could read it metaphorically as in, like, you know, the spirit of Pythagoras, this, you know, the human spirit in general is returning and is ever anew in new people. But I think it might be meant pretty literally. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's expressing the possibility that with metempsychosis— if you're born again, you have to relearn all the wisdom of, uh, of age, that there's this eternally uh, recycling sen uh, sequence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I also do think that there's a certain um, way in which I don't think he is necessarily depicting this, this uh, rebirth into, like, youth as purely a process of, like, losing wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, like, I, I think there is a kind of, like you know, renewal and, like, innocence in this. Sure, but it is losing... I think that that renewal and innocence and reinvigoration does come with this sense of, like, you know, not... Rather than being so good, so wise, so mild, you have someone young, energetic, green, wild rather than mild, new. And yeah. I think that, that that question, I think, throughout the book of wisdom and energy being opposing poles of the human experience both of which are positive, but which need to be correctly joined together, is, I think that's pretty consistent throughout Ishmael's perspective. That there's, like, you know, there's the honey head of Plato that you can fall into, but there's also a, you know, an energetic, rough, um, you know, vitalism that also needs to be sort of uh, organized and reined in. Yeah, I think that uh, it's not unreasonable to see something about that here. Um... 
<sighs> I do want to go back also a little bit because that um that bit where he describes the uh the Leviathan as being like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um is specifically about um uh people who are uh, refusing orders to worship a golden idol and are punished by being thrown into a furnace but they come out unharmed and i think that's specifically important because something weird's going on because the whale is very definitely dead and being processed um it's not like the whale is you know co actually coming out unscathed but is becoming out rarefied and purified yeah yeah i i, I think you know I, I feel like there's a couple things going on here first of all it's just the case that the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, like, just a, a biblical story about people being thrown into a furnace. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways I'm surprised that we haven't gotten allusion, an allusion to that before. Yeah, didn't we have an allusion to Moloch at some point? I guess. I but Anyways. But I don't know why you... No, because it's, it's about people being thrown into a fire. That's a different uh, biblical, illusion, uh, biblical furnace. Oh, like, like sacrificing people in the fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Moloch to... And children are thrown into the furnace of Moloch, which would be a pagan symbolism from the Bible that would be directly applicable. But here he's specifically choosing the one in which, you know, the idol loses. And given the previous element of, you know, discussing biblical idolatry with, uh, with the penis. Yeah, 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 no, but I, I, I think because, okay, he doesn't say the whale passes unscathed. What he says is his spermaceti oil and bone pass unscathed through the fire. And I think what he kind of... The whale, the body of the whale passes away, but the spermaceti, oil, and bone are, like, retained. And that those are the parts of the yeah, whale yeah. that are, are kept and, and sold. Um, yeah, they're refined into something, you know, that humans want. Refine, and y I guess you could even see the oil as, like, the spirit of the whale. The, like, uh, the, um, you know, the soul of the whale that is refined into this pure light again there was that element of like the food of light um anyways yeah yeah, yeah I, I i think that that that's uh something like that um anyway uh so yeah uh we have reached the end of processing the whale we have uh it has passed through the fire and also a number of other things and uh, been produced into uh, saleable oil that is now stowed down there looking for more whales. Yeah. Such is the, the cycle, the, the metempsychosis of yep. whaling. Yep. And now we can uh, stop talking about whale butchery and cooking whales and so on for a little while, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like I said before, it's like, well, we have reached this chapter that seems to be kind of wrapping up the process of whale butchery and oil and trying out and all of that but if there's not more whale processing somewhere in this book i'll be amazed like the idea that <sighs> ishmael could be like yes all right i have completed describing something to you systematically point by point in order which i mean he didn't do that it was all kinds of out of order in various <laughs> ways but uh he did he could just be like all right i'm done talking about that it won't come up again i don't believe him <laughs> yeah i i think that's basically fair i would be surprised if some kind of whale processing does not occur again but i am like skimming through and i don't remember any major elements of whale processing so much like we got the um uh, the majority of whale classification over and done with we may now have finished the anatomy and processing of the whale for the most part yeah i guess we are 
you know, we're at chapter 98. How many are there total? About 150, I believe, or 130? Here, let me just... Uh, there are 135. Ah. So, yeah, like, we're not... We have been able to see as we go through this on Ben's <sighs> paper book that we're... We're like, we've got maybe a fifth of the book left. Yeah, I, I that's, that's like, a guess. I'd say like a quarter. Uh, but yeah, no, we're just looking at a book and visually estimating it. Yeah, yeah this um, this is not scientific. Um, but yeah, no, we're we're a ways through the story at this point. Uh, I uh, yeah, you're right. It's closer to fourth. Anyways, yeah, no, we're we are getting along with Moby Dick, and sometime soon we may actually see in person Moby Dick someday. I mean, this you know, this this assumption may not apply to this story at all. But the way I'm kind of thinking about this is like, okay, if I was, if this was like a, a, a multi-season long TV show that I was watching <laughs> and Moby Dick hadn't shown up at this point, I would expect that we're not going to see Moby Dick until the finale. Um, and I know you know, so don't say anything, I'm ben. not commenting. I'm, <laughs> I'm very loudly being silent. <sighs> oh, but yeah, I'm... I really enjoy the whale processing bits. They're they're horrible and involve too many kinds of meat and sperm, but they're also fascinating, and it's really... I really love the way Ishmael's mind wanders. Like, I know I am the one beating the drum of Ishmael is bad at telling stories because I think it's thematically important that he cannot really communicate certain things, but I do really love the actual book we get from that, and I think that character is bad at telling story or story is told in a disjointed way are absolutely like valid and powerful ways to tell a story on the meta level like on the actual level of telling the of writing the book so i i was kind of thinking to myself how long have we actually been on the whale processing subject and i'm looking back over the titles of the chapters i i feel like at the very least the like the the latest I can say that started was chapter 67. The cutting, cutting in. in, yeah. Yeah, which would mean we went 67 through 98. So 30... with, with a lot of other stuff happening yeah, in the yeah, middle, yeah. right? But, but, but throughout that passage, there has been... Especially since I believe we cut into the first whale um, with the first whale stub kills. Like, the, that, the yes. cutting in is with the first whale. And then we later return to that same whale... With the tri the tri works as we mentioned that little reversal thing that happens the little uh, structural weirdness yeah yeah so we have in fact kept that whale in abeyance for thirty chapters yes yeah and I also think like looking at this because Ishmael is kind of viewing the entire whale chase as a process right mm-hmm. uh, so in that sense we could actually trace this all the way back to like I don't know. Uh, the first lowering, maybe? Th- yeah. That I, was I, chapter 48. I personally would not count the first lowering. I'd start with Stub kills a whale. Or... Oh, I guess, yeah, because they didn't get a whale at the first lowering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, they, yeah. they went for one, but so, they did yeah. not actually get a whale until uh, Stub kills a whale, and then I believe, uh, yeah, then they kill a right whale for the head. So, yeah, that was the first whale of the voyage. Yeah. The first successful whale of the voyage. They're, they previous, The first lowering was unsuccessful. Oh, yeah, no, a lot going on. A lot of uh, a lot of whales have been chased and seen, and uh, now a couple have been uh, butchered and processed and made into uh, flammable materials. Um, the freshest of fossil fuels. <laughs> I know <laughs> they're not a fossil not. fuel. I know they're not a fossil fuel, but they are a uh, you know a carbohydrate based oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I. Uh, 
oh, I need to work on that sometime. I, I did actually get to write a grad school paper once about how, uh, like, fossil fuels and specific, or specifically whale oil is present in uh, Turner's paintings because the black they used for a dark black in uh, in his era was lamp black, which is literally the soot taken from lamps, which would have been primarily whale oil. And then he did pictures of whaling that have like this very particular weird quality in the use of their blacks. So the whale's blood is being rendered in whale's soot. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I had a really great time with that. Anyways, we're now just getting into things I think are cool that are vaguely related. But, I feel uh, like what you're talking about with these Turner paintings is kind of the 19th century equivalent of that, that I think it's a Tumblr post that's like, uh, even in the false self remains a shadow of the true self, where it's like dinosaur to like, you know, chicken, uh, tar. So tar to plastic dinosaur. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that. Uh, it's a little bit different because I'm drawing in some very weird theory stuff from um, Cyclonopedia, which is Rege Nagarastani's, uh, like, cosmic horror tome about how oil is destroying the world. It's very cool and mildly distressing. Anyways, we've gotten way off topic. I'm very sorry. I just <laughs> no, remember no. the oil. It's all good. Um <sighs> Uh, well, what tune is it we sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat? 